Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, is geology predictable or is the mineral composition of Earth due to chance events? The answers could help identify planets likely to harbor life. And stick around or skip ahead to our second segment, natural quasi-crystals. When scientists traced a museum rock back to its origins, they uncovered mysteries about the early solar system. First, how life and luck changed Earth's minerals by Roberta Kwok. Is evolution predictable or was it heavily shaped by random events? Biologists have argued over this question for decades. Some have suggested that if we replayed the history of life on our planet, the resulting species would be different. Opponents counter that life is largely deterministic. Recently, researchers have begun to ask the same questions about rocks. About 5,000 minerals, crystalline substances such as quartz, zircon, and diamond, have been found on Earth. But minerals didn't just appear all at once when the Earth formed. They materialized over time, each crystal arising in response to the conditions of the particular epoch in which it formed. Minerals evolved, in some cases in response to life. And so geologists are left to ask, are today's minerals a predictable consequence of the planet's chemical makeup, or are they the result of chance events? What if we were to look out at the cosmos and spot another Earth-like planet? Would we expect its gemstones to match ours? Or would they shine with a luster never seen before? Robert Hazen, a mineral physicist at the Carnegie Institution of Washington's Geophysical Laboratory and his colleagues, are publishing a series of four papers this year that reveal broad insights into whether geology is a matter of fate. Minerals on Earth may indeed have been guided by some deterministic rules that could apply to other worlds as well, they found. But our planet is rife with extremely rare minerals, which suggests that chance occurrences also play a significant part. In addition, if we found an Earth-like twin somewhere else in the universe, many common minerals would likely be the same. But that planet would probably also hold many minerals unlike any that exist here. The findings aren't just a matter of curiosity. Some minerals may have helped early organisms emerge, and understanding which minerals could have formed on Earth-like planets may help scientists better predict which worlds are likeliest to harbor life. Conversely, some minerals arise only in the presence of organisms, so finding patterns in Earth's mineral distribution could help scientists identify a mineralogical signature for life, which they could then search for on other planets. Traditionally, mineralogy has been dominated by analyzing the structures and formations of individual minerals. But in a 2008 study in American Mineralogist, Hazen and his colleagues took a more historical view. The researchers assessed Earth's known minerals and tried to figure out when the conditions were right for their formation. The team concluded that about two-thirds of Earth's minerals would not have emerged until life was present. For example, early microorganisms seeded the atmosphere with oxygen, which interacted with existing minerals to yield new ones. The so-called great oxygenation effect was a huge game-changer, said Hazen. You open the door to literally thousands of new minerals. Hazen and collaborators then set out to investigate the role that chance played in mineral formation. First, 
The researchers studied the relationship between mineral diversity and the abundance of individual elements in Earth's crust. They found that the more abundant the element, the more minerals it formed, a relationship that was published last month in the Canadian Mineralogist. They then performed the same exercise with minerals from the moon. A similar relationship held even though the number of known minerals there is much smaller. This common trend suggested an element of determinism. Given starting chemical conditions, one could predict, to a certain extent, which minerals would form. The team did find outliers, however. For instance, the element rubidium forms fewer minerals than expected, given its abundance. However, Hazen's team believes there are chemical reasons for the discrepancies. Rubidium frequently substitutes for potassium in minerals and thus gets used up in existing potassium-dominated minerals. Meanwhile, some elements such as copper form more minerals than expected because they have several chemical states that allow them to combine with other atoms in multiple ways. These results still support the idea of determinism, said co-author Ed Grew, a petrologist at the University of Maine, because we can explain why they're not obeying the rules. Peter Heaney, a mineralogist at Penn State University Park, notes that the correlation for Earth's minerals is fairly weak, but he said that the reasons given for the outliers make sense. What I think is really important is that Hazen's asking these questions and making us think about mineral diversification in a way that no one has really done before, said Heaney, who was not involved in the study. Hazen's team also found evidence for the role of chance. The researchers used a crowdsourced database to retrieve more than 650,000 mineral observations at specific locations around the world. 22% of all minerals were reported in only one place, and 12% were found in only two places. The presence of so many onesies and twosies suggests that randomness does play a role, said Chris McKay, an astrobiologist at NASA Ames Research Center in Moffett Field, California who was not involved in the study. That's the hallmark of chance events. These rare minerals might appear only under fortuitous circumstances, such as an unusual assembly of rocks that concentrates elements together. It'd be like if you threw together a whole mess of ingredients and cooked it up, and it came out to be a prize-winning culinary dish, said Gru. And so, what would happen if you replayed Earth's history? There are about 15,300 plausible ways to combine naturally occurring elements into unique elements, the researchers estimate. In a rerun of Earth, they say, at least one quarter of the planet's roughly 5,000 minerals would come out differently. In addition, the chances that another planet has exactly the same set of minerals as Earth is less than 1 in 10 to the 300th, the researchers report, in a paper that will be published next month in Earth and Planetary Science Letters. In other words, our planet's precise mineral composition is unlikely to be found anywhere else in the universe. Life adds another wildcard. Earlier work by Hazen and other scientists showed that minerals and life likely co-evolved. Minerals might have prodded life along by catalyzing reactions that produced biomolecules, for example. And life certainly changed the biosphere in ways that affected how minerals formed. The origin of life depends on minerals, but the origin of minerals depends on life, said Hazen. Because of this relationship, the presence or absence of certain minerals on distant planets could affect the chance that the planet harbors detectable life. For example, astronomers know that some stars have different ratios of elements than the Sun does. 
The star's chemical makeup affects the abundance of elements on any orbiting planets, and thus which minerals might form. Those minerals, in turn, could influence geological processes, the chances of life emerging, and whether signs of life would be visible. If scientists can factor the likelihood of various minerals into their models, they might be able to more accurately pick the most promising planets to study. It's a game of statistics, said Patrick Young, a theoretical astrophysicist at Arizona State University, Tempe. But which minerals are needed for life, if any, is still murky? Stephen Freeland, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, points out the example of the element phosphorus. It's not that abundant, but it's critical for life on Earth. Did a mineral gather and concentrate the element, thus allowing life to incorporate it? Minerals, in a sense, are ways of pulling order out of chaos, said Freeland. But, he adds, all of this is swimming in an ocean of unknowns. If life requires only common minerals to form, those minerals would likely be available on another Earth-like planet. However, if life depends on rare minerals, then the chances of its emergence might be dicier. Mineralogical differences between planets might be only of academic interest. Or it could mean that they have differences in mineralogy that are profound, said McKay. Hazen's team is now working to determine which minerals characterize Earth-like planets. Hazen thinks that the presence of many rare minerals might indicate that life emerged. For example, the interactions of different types of microbes with the soil create many specialized microenvironments, where new minerals can form, and minerals might leave a more lasting imprint than cellular detritus. Hazen's team has also made predictions about minerals on Earth. The researchers found that the distribution of minerals, a few common ones and many rare ones, resembles the distribution of words in a text. A few words, such as a and the, appear frequently, but many words appear only sporadically. The team could therefore use models employed by linguists to analyze their data on minerals and extrapolate how many undiscovered minerals might exist on Earth. At least 6,394 minerals are present, which means that about 1,500 new ones could be found with current search techniques, the researchers estimate in a paper published in June in mathematical geosciences. Many of these missing minerals likely escape notice because they have dull colors or are unstable, the team notes in a paper scheduled to be published in October in American Mineralogist. But Hazen hopes to hunt some down. For instance, sodium minerals tend to be white or gray and might be found at Lake Natron in Tanzania, which contains huge deposits of white minerals. Finding the missing minerals probably won't add to our understanding of how life emerged. I doubt we're going to find some mineral that is the smoking gun for the origin of life, said Hazen. But the work might help scientists make firm predictions about what new minerals might exist, rather than leaving their discovery to chance. And now, a related story from Quanta's archives. In a Grain, A Glimpse of the Cosmos, by Natalie Wolchover. One January afternoon, five years ago, Princeton geologist Lincoln Hollister opened an email from a colleague he'd never met, bearing the subject line, Help! 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 
Paul Steinhardt, a theoretical physicist and the director of Princeton Center for Theoretical Science, wrote that he had an extraordinary rock on his hands, one that he thought was natural, but whose origin information he could not identify. Hollister had examined tons of obscure rocks over his five-decade career and agreed to take a look. Originally a dense grain, two or three millimeters across, that had been ground down into microscopic fragments, the rock was a mishmash of lustrous metal and matte mineral of a yellowish hue. It reminded Hollister of something from Oregon called Josephinite. He told Steinhardt that such rocks typically form deep underground at the boundary between Earth's core and mantle, or near the surface due to a particular weathering phenomenon. Of course, all of that ended up being a false path, said Hollister, 75. The more the scientists studied the rock, the stranger it seemed. After five years, approximately 5,000 Steinhardt Hollister emails, and a treacherous journey to the barren Arctic tundra of northeastern Russia, the mystery has only deepened. Today, Steinhardt, Hollister, and 15 collaborators reported the curious results of a long and improbable detective story. Their findings, detailed in the journal Nature Communications, reveal new aspects of the solar system as it was 4.5 billion years ago. Chunks of incongruous metal inexplicably orbiting the newborn sun, a collision of extraordinary magnitude, and the creation of new minerals, including an entire class of matter never before seen in nature. It's a drama etched in the geochemistry of a truly singular rock. It's telling us there appear to be processes that took place in the early solar system that we were completely unaware of, said study co-author Glenn McPherson, a senior geologist at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. It's going to be a burr under the skin of quite a few people, trying to understand this rather peculiar mystery. Discovered in 2008, in the basement of a geology museum in Florence, Italy, in a box labeled Catacrite, the specimen boasted magnificent patches of quasi-crystal, a special state of matter that had been created in laboratories but had never been seen in nature. From ice to diamonds, all crystals in the universe exhibit 14 types of symmetries, ways their atomic lattices can be rotated, translated, or reflected into indistinguishable positions. Quasi-crystals, in which atoms are arranged in orderly patterns that never exactly repeat, have an infinite number of possible symmetries. Until their highly disputed discovery in synthetic materials in 1982, for which the Israeli scientist Dan Schekman received derision and, 29 years later, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, such states of matter were widely deemed impossible. Even in 2009, they remained lab-grown curiosities. If the Florence specimen formed in nature, it would contain the first natural quasi-crystal ever discovered, something Steinhardt has been doggedly pursuing for ten years. While analyzing the specimen, Hollister noticed that the dazzling pattern of the quasi-crystal contained metallic aluminum, a substance that never occurs naturally on Earth because of how easily it binds with oxygen to form aluminum oxide. Metallic iron, also present, is almost as rare. Stranger still, the rock contained copper. Except for rare encounters in human-made alloys, aluminum and copper don't mix. Whereas aluminum bonds with oxygen and resists water, copper bonds with sulfur, dissolves in water, and washes away. Most known processes separate copper from aluminum, Hollister said. Man can put these elements together. 
but nature takes them apart. Like the many peculiar nuggets picked up near the iron surfaces in Trenton and delivered like offerings to his office, Hollister thought the sample must be slag, the solid waste that metal factories sometimes release into the environment. If it had come from an aluminum smelter, the presence of quasi-crystals wouldn't be so surprising. Since their discovery 30 years ago, more than a hundred types of quasi-crystals have been forged in laboratory settings. Steinhardt was devastated by Hollister's slag assessment. So was Luca Bindi, an Italian mineralogist who had spent years analyzing rocks in the collection of the Florence Museum of Natural History, before shipping the promising catachrite sample to Princeton. If the rock couldn't have formed on Earth, then they wondered, how about in space? Steinhardt paid a visit to McPherson, a former student of Hollister's who specialized in meteorites. But McPherson immediately seconded Hollister's opinion that the sample was synthetic. It was like no meteorite he had ever seen. Phased, but still not ready to give up on nature, Steinhardt and Bindi, with Hollister's assistance, spent the next few months analyzing trace minerals in the grain, one by one, and researching industrial processes that might have yielded them. To their delight, the rock grew less anthropogenic by the day. Strewn with funny islands of rare and even unknown materials, it had evidently coalesced under extreme and tumultuous conditions. Finally, one mineral gave the scientists their answer. Surrounding a patch of quasi-crystals was stichovite, an ultra-high-pressure form of quartz. This is not something that is made in an aluminum smelter on the surface of the earth, Hollister said. Stichovite could only have formed deep inside the mantle or during an outer space impact. Steinhardt, a 61-year-old professor who radiates a quiet intensity, has studied the theory behind quasi-crystals since before they were known to exist. Whereas a crystal can be understood as a motif of atoms, repeating with a certain frequency in space, a quasi-crystal involves two or more frequencies and their ratio is an irrational number, like the square root of two, or the golden mean. The combination of the frequencies never exactly repeats, and therefore neither does the pattern of atoms. It's kind of a disharmony in space, Steinhardt explained this winter in Princeton, carefully handling a plastic model of a quasi-crystal that he keeps on his desk. Like disharmonious musical notes conspiring to create a recurring but non-cyclical progression of sounds, you'll see arrangements of atoms that seem similar, he said. But when you look at what's around those atoms, you'll see it's a little bit different here than there. The lack of exact repetition allows quasi-crystals to have any possible rotational symmetry. The Florence specimen exhibited the symmetries of an icosahedron, a soccer ball-like atomic arrangement that can be viewed from 60 different angles without any change to the structure's overall orientation. But it isn't clear why quasi-crystals form. We do not know how these atoms select such a complicated structure, said An Pangsai, a materials scientist at Tohoku University in Japan who has studied the question for more than 25 years. One idea, developed in the 1980s by Steinhardt and his student Dove Levine, now a theoretical physicist at Technion University in Israel, holds that the atoms in the quasi-crystals might first cluster together into pentagons, decagons, or a potentially infinite variety of other shapes, and that these clusters then follow specific rules governing how they align with their neighbors. 
analogous to the geometric rules that govern Penrose tilings, which lock into irrational, non-repeating patterns. An alternative theory holds that quasi-crystals assemble randomly. The atoms form symmetric clusters that then arrange themselves in arbitrary ways. If this theory is correct, then there are no forces dictating how adjacent clusters must join together. This would mean that quasi-crystals are not completely stable. Over time, they will decompose, said Michael Widom, a physicist at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who helped develop this entropic theory. Motivated largely by this debate, Steinhardt and a few colleagues began searching for a natural quasi-crystal in 1999. The discovery of such an object would expand the list of classifications of minerals from 230. The total possible combinations of those 14 crystalline symmetries to infinity. It could point to exotic geologic processes involving unknown extremes of pressure or cooling. And most importantly, it would support Steinhardt's view that quasi-crystals are true, stable states of matter shaped by unknown interatomic forces, rather than random assemblages of atoms that eventually decompose. For Paul, it was crucial to know whether this material was stable for geologic periods of time, Hollister said. After years of failed searches, punctuated with false positives, the presence of stichovite in the Florence specimen meant vindication. The rock and the quasi-crystal it contained were natural, proving that at least some quasi-crystals remained stable for far longer than physicists had been studying them in the lab. The striking thing about it was, it was perfect, Steinhardt said. A beautiful, unmistakable pattern. In 2010, after the scientists spent months presenting their evidence to colleagues, the International Mineralogical Association accepted the Florence Quasi-Crystal, AL-63, Cu-24, Fe-13, or icosahedrite, as a new mineral. Still, a big question remained, Steinhardt said. How did nature manage to do this? He sent the sample to the California Institute of Technology for an analysis of its ratio of three isotopes of oxygen, which serves as a unique fingerprint of everything in the solar system. Sure enough, the rock had the oxygen fingerprint of a meteorite, and a rare and old kind too, a CB3 carbonaceous chondrite. As the sole artifacts from the era of the sun's birth, more than 4.5 billion years ago, these meteorites provide us with unique clues to that time and place, and are of special interest to experts, said Peter Busick, a professor of chemistry at Arizona State University. A CB3 carbonaceous chondrite called the Allende meteorite that fell to Mexico in 1969, often described as the most studied meteorite in history, contained metal isotopes that suggested the gravitational collapse of gas and dust that created the sun may have been triggered by a shockwave from a nearby supernova. But according to McPherson, a leading expert on carbonaceous chondrites, the Florence sample was like none other known to science, even discounting the presence of quasi-crystals. This is the only meteorite that has any metallic aluminum in it, period, he said. We're dealing with a statistic of one. But even that number was overstating the situation, as years of tests had reduced the sample to dust. We had to get it in context in order to figure out how it formed, because that became the big question, Hollister said. First, it was controversial, if it was natural. Then we found unambiguous meteorite signs. But then the question is, what does it tell us about processes in outer space? 
The scientists needed more material, and so they had to retrace their sample's path back to its source. We had to discover how the rock managed to get to the museum, Steinhardt said. All we had was a box. A letter in the museum archives explained that the box had been bought in a bulk allotment from an Amsterdam collector named Nicholas Kokek, a man with no internet presence and a common Dutch name. It seemed like a dead end until a fortuitous dinner in Florence three years ago. Bindi was regaling his companions with a quasi-crystal story when an acquaintance at the table remembered that an older woman named Kokek lived on her street in Amsterdam. When the acquaintance returned home, she asked her neighbor about the gem dealer who shared her last name. Remarkably, Nicholas Kokek was the old woman's deceased husband. Bindi hopped on a plane to Amsterdam. The widow knew nothing of catacrite, but she offered to let Bindi look through her husband's secret diary. In it, Kokek explained that he had purchased the mineral from a man named Tim during a trip to Romania in 1987. But where had Tim obtained the mineral? We spent six weeks trying to find him and didn't get even a smidgen of a hint, Steinhardt said. I sent Luca back to this woman to see if she knew anything about Tim, the Romanian. She didn't, but she revealed that her husband used to keep a secret, secret diary. That diary revealed that Kokek had actually purchased the mineral from Leonid Razin, then the director of the Institute of Platinum in St. Petersburg, Russia. It was a name Bindi recognized. In 1985, Razin had scientifically reported and characterized the only other genuine example of catacrite known to exist, the holotype, or world standard, which was discovered near the Koryak Mountains in far eastern Russia and is kept in a museum in St. Petersburg. It seemed that the holotype and the Florence specimen were found together and that Razin has studied the former and sold the latter. But when Steinhardt tracked down Razin and called him up at his new home in Israel, Razin said that he didn't remember how he acquired the catacrite. Again, the trail went cold. Out of ideas, Steinhardt returned to the 1985 paper in which Razin reported the discovery of catacrite. The first paragraph mentioned a man named Valery Kriashko, who seemed to have played a role on the discovery. Contacts told Steinhardt that Kriashko was probably an untraceable rural miner who had picked up the catacrite while panning for minerals on behalf of the Institute of Platinum. But not long after, while idly perusing Russian mineralogy journals in search of more leads, Steinhardt spotted Kriashko's name among the authors of a different paper from 1995. Suddenly, we went from nothing to maybe, maybe, maybe this is our guy. Steinhardt said. The scientists found Kriashko in Moscow. An enthusiastic mineralogist in his 60s, he explained through Google Translate that Razin had indeed hired him to mine for platinum back when Kriashko was in graduate school. In 1979, he was deposited by helicopter at an obscure stream called List Venetovyi, hundreds of miles from the nearest village, and spent several days digging through the blue-green clay. No platinum turned up in the several hundred kilograms of clay he panned, but Kriachko did find a few shiny little nuggets he couldn't identify. He delivered them to Razin and never heard about them again. Remarkably, Kriachko could pinpoint the exact location of the stream on a map. It ran through a remote region called Chukotka, an autonomous province with a lower population density than the Western Sahara, and so far east that, as Hollister put it, You can see Sarah Palin from there.
In the summer of 2011, a 13-person crew, including Steinhardt, McPherson, Bindi, and Kriyoshko, set off in a pair of snowcats from the remote mining town of Anadir into the newly thawed tundra. As they lurched across the spongy, rugged landscape, the trucks took turns breaking down, and Steinhardt worried that the crew would not have enough time at the stream. After four long days, the caravan at last arrived at the scene Kriyoshko had described— a trickle of frigid water winding through strange blue-green clay in the foothills of the Koryak Mountains. McPherson set up a makeshift lab to sort through candidate rocks, and the crew took turns digging and panning and wielding a modified AK-47 assault rifle to protect the group from the enormous brown bears that roamed the region. That very first afternoon, a shiny rock fragment caught Bindi's eye, a piece of meteorite he felt sure. By the tenth day, the crew had panned a ton and a half of clay, which yielded a few kilograms of promising grains. As the scientists broke down their camp and loaded up the trucks, they could feel the air getting colder. The next day, we're driving out over the mountains, and we look back and it's all white, Steinhardt said. We got out literally the day before winter hit. Hollister, who retired from Princeton in 2011 and cited age in staying home from Chukotka, likes to say that space rocks have bookended his career. He began in the 1970s, analyzing moon rocks that had been collected by Apollo astronauts. Two years ago, in the very first grain he slid under a microscope from the Chukotka expedition, something reminded him of the Apollo rocks from decades earlier. Creeping through the sample were crystalline veins made of iron-rich ringwoodite, a high-pressure version of a more common mineral called olivine, much as stishovite is a high-pressure variant of quartz. Ringwoodite only forms from a shock equivalent to more than 5 million times atmospheric pressure, the kind of jolt moon rocks experience when, in an event that is believed to have formed the moon, an asteroid impact knocked them loose from Earth. But this time, the presence of ringwoodite didn't make sense. Carbonaceous chondrites formed peacefully, slowly accreting as more and more material clumped together in orbit around the infant sun. You don't find carbonaceous chondrites with evidence of shock, Hollister said, at least never with battle wounds nearly this extreme. The nine grains of meteorite that have been identified thus far among the Chukotka spoils, including Bindi's lucky find on the first day, contain an assortment of unlikely substances, including the natural quasicrystal icosahedrite, other rare aluminum-copper alloys, specks of pure aluminum, and ringwoodite riddling swathes of more common nickel and iron alloys. Hollister, McPherson, and the other scientists have spent the past two years working out a plausible backstory for the peculiar concoction. That's how we build up our understanding of the evolution of the solar nebula, by looking at these materials and piecing together how they fit into the bigger story of the overall history of the solar system, Steinhardt explained. Either an epic collision triggered the formation of icosahedrite and the other alloys, or the impact happened afterward. McPherson is leaning toward the view that the metals formed first in some unknown way in the solar nebula, and then experienced shock when the asteroid, into which they later became incorporated, collided with another. But, he admits, this would make the meteorite doubly remarkable, and most of us are not believers in coincidence. Alternatively, the shock could have jolted the quasi-crystal and other aluminum-copper alloys into being, which might also explain why they show telltale signs of rapid cooling, such as strips of aluminum metal extracted from surrounding crystals, 
as if the rock had suddenly been hurled into space. But it is still unclear how aluminum and copper came together inside iron-nickel alloys in the first place. Aluminum was forming solids when copper was still a gas, McPherson said. That's why this quasi-crystal is such a bizarre thing. It opens our eyes to things that we've not recognized before. Then, there is the unprecedented presence of aluminum metal. No other meteorites have ever even suggested that there was metallic aluminum in the early solar system, said Hollister. In general, the study authors say, further analysis is needed to understand the processes that led to the formation of the bizarre materials in the space rock and their implications. Although the quasi-crystals are the big bling factor in this whole project, McPherson said, they're actually no longer the mystery, at least not to me. It's how the alloys formed. Extensive studies in the laboratory by Sai and others have shown that icosahedrite is almost certainly a stable state of matter, as Steinhardt and Levine have long argued, rather than a random decomposing aggregate. With the discovery of an ancient example, the evidence is now overwhelming. It adds an exclamation point to the fact that these are stable, Levine said. And yet, questions remain. Why are quasi-crystals stable? What are the forces locking adjacent clusters together? The answers will give a new picture of physics, Sai said, adding that they could have a bearing on the stability of other little-understood phases of matter. Steinhardt is already thinking about where to look next for more examples of natural quasi-crystals. Perhaps one's never seen in the lab that could deepen scientists' understanding of their stability. It could have turned out it was in my backyard and consisted of silicon and oxygen in some strange configuration, he said. That could still be sitting in my backyard, and I just don't know it. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Leah Alfonso. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.